Great. If you're new or visiting this morning, good morning and welcome. Glad you came to our church and, and we hope you feel welcome and we hope you hear from the Lord this morning. Um, we're in the book of Malachi. We've done a couple messages already. And so we're in a series called When the Lights Went Out. And the reason for that is Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. After Malachi, there was what is called the 400 years of silence. And there was not another prophetic voice until that guy named John the Baptist came along talking about another guy named Jesus. And uh, we kind of know how that all went. And so it was the last word to them uh, in a formal sense. And so we're going to be doing, uh, this message will be a two-part message. We'll do the first part today and then the next part next Sunday. I just want you to make aware of it. Um, we're going to be looking at the topic of divorce, all right? And, and I, I, there's hardly any of us who haven't been touched by that topic, right? There's all kinds of uh, debris field and pain and wounds and scabs and, and that kind of stuff that exists, and uh, I, I recognize that. Uh, and so we'll walk through it. We'll try, I'm, I prayed my prayer for the Lord was that I'd have the right tone this morning, right? And try to hit it right. So we'll look at Malachi today and we'll look at the New Testament uh, next week and take that on. So to begin, let's just do a review of where we've been to help catch up. The book opens up with God saying to Israel, I have loved you. And they come back with, really? How have you loved us? Right? And you can tell right there, there's a juxtaposition. Okay? There's a perception problem on their part of what God has done for them and they've forgotten. They have uh, gotten busy with life and they're looking at it and going, I don't know that this is all working out so great. And so they come back with God. They want to contest with God. And God says, all right, well, if you want to dialogue on this, let's dialogue. And Malachi is basically that engaged dialogue that God has with them. Uh, we also said that most of the book is aimed at the priest. Uh, we would call that the pastors, right? It's aimed at the priest, but it does um, come down to the people themselves. The reason for the priests is that they were the guardians, they were the guardians of the temple. They were the guardians of the sacrifices. They were the guardians of the offering. And they were the guardians of the teaching. right? And so they were the caretakers of the culture. They were the caretakers of the nation. And um, they had violated that. We said also that the offering, an offering always represents the first and the best, not the last and the least. Right? Anytime you give an offering to God, it should be the first and the best, not the last and the least. And they had failed on this. There were two particular ways they had sinned against God in this. One was they were keeping for themselves what was supposed to be God's. They kind of looked at it and said, he doesn't really need it. He's got what needs to be. It's not going to hurt if I keep it for myself. And so they sinned that way. Um, and then the other way is they were cheating. They were cutting corners. This is the ones who said, oh, well, yeah, we still have to offer sacrifice, but, you know, we got a bunch of lambs and these are perfect ones and these are spotted blemished ones and, and these are worth more and these are worth less. Who's going to really know? They're going to both burn up anyways. Let's give them the blemish, blemished animals because nobody really wants that anyways. And it just carried over that then that's kind of how they treated God. So, so that's the background that we walk into this morning and Malachi begins... Uh, we're in chapter 2 here, and uh, verse 7, and uh, let's pray before we do this. Lord, we come this morning, and we've already had one service, and 
uh, it was a profound effect. In the, it's a tough topic. It's a really tough topic. It's not one that a pastor looks forward to, and yet it has to be walked through. So help me do that with diligence, but also with right tone. And we seek that for your name and, and your fame, and we give that uh, wholeheartedly to you. Amen. All right. Malachi 2 says this, verse 7 and 8, uh, first part. It says, For the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is a messenger of the Lord Almighty, and, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned away from, from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. And so here God, Malachi is talking to the priests about they are the caretakers of knowledge, and they are to be the ones who teach the people the right way to follow the Lord. I did. A, I looked up a study this week <clears throat> well, looking at some of the dangers that are going on in our culture in terms of uh, biblical knowledge and, and where we are culturally uh, with biblical knowledge. And regarding evangelicals, and evangelicals would be what we call mostly Bible-believing churches. Right? Um, they believe in the gospel. They believe in people coming to Christ as Savior. And so that's where the name evangelical, even good news, right? We're good news churches, churches of the gospel, churches of the Bible. And it says this, a majority of evangelicals said, one, that most people are basically good, two, that God accepts the worship of all religions, and three, that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. And the study here says, however, all these beliefs are are contrary to historic Christian faith. So there's there's a mush pot out there somewhere going on. Some 52% of evangelicals agreed that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. So over half, 52%. This contrasts with the Bible's teaching that human nature is fundamentally sinful. Romans 3.10, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A majority of evangelicals, 51%, agreed that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. However, Jesus insisted that access to God is only possible through faith in him. In John 14.6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He said the proportion, what's interesting about this, and the proportion of those who agree, who agree is an increase from 2016, which is 48%. So we went from 48% in 2016 to 52% in 2018. So just in a two-year shift that's taken place. Almost all evangelicals, 97%, we get a little better here, all right? Some good news. 97% agree that there is one true God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But more than three-fourths, 78%, also said that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. The idea that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by the Father is contradicted by the Bible, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know those verses well. And has been rejected by the church down through the centuries. More positively, 91%, we're getting something right here, 91% of evangelicals affirm that people are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Right? So if you look in there, so overall, U.S. adults appear to have a superficial attachment to well-known Christian beliefs. For example, a majority agreed that Jesus died on the cross for sin and that he rose from the dead. However, they rejected the Bible's teaching on the gravity of man's sin 
or two, the importance of the churches gathering together for worship, or three, the Holy Spirit. How so? More than two-thirds, 69% of Americans disagreed that the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. That's a doctrine that's not finding much popularity in our culture right now. The majority of U.S. adults, 58%, said that worshiping alone or with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. Uh, organized church, the uh, official church, right? We don't need to do that, right? We can, we can do it in the wilderness kind of thing. A majority of U.S. adults, 59%, say that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. Of course, where did that come from? Star Wars, right? And so we see the bleeding across effects of of a bunch of these ideas of people who no longer attend church, of people who aren't reading their Bibles anymore, and you start to see the the mush there. Chris Larson, president and CEO of Legionnaire Ministries. Legionnaire Ministries is uh, R.C. Sproul and all that camp, all right? So a really great group of people. says, the state of theology, the state of theology survey highlights the urgent need for courageous ministry, that right faithfully teaches the historic Christian faith. It's never been <coughs> excuse me, popular to talk about mankind's sinfulness or the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. But at a time when a darkened world needs the light of the gospel, it's disheartening to see many within the evangelical church confused about what the Bible teaches. We hope this survey provides local churches with a little more insight you know, what people in our neighborhoods and our pews actually believe. And that's from Dr. Stephen Nichols, who's the chairman of that ministry. And so what you see here is that in our culture, there's a lot of ideas floating out there, right? Going out in all kinds of different... And it's the pastors who are responsible for teaching the people what they did. And what Malachi's saying to the priests of the day, you haven't done that. You, you've really failed. And then he goes on to begin to talk about the issues in the culture. So let's Move to that Malachi 2.10. If you have your Bibles, phones, look there up on the screen. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? And so Malachi kicks off the discussion here about unfaithfulness. He's going to talk about unfaithfulness to God and particularly in the issue of divorce. But overall, he's talking about just being unfaithful across the board. We tend to throw each other on the bus. What had happened is they had gotten away from being true to the Lord and they had started to go, hey, uh, the culture is going to give me what I want. And so we rush after the culture and in the process of rushing after the culture, we kind of throw each other on the bus. You know, it's kind of king of the hill or piggy on the pile and, oh, you didn't get yours? Well, I got mine too bad. I feel sorry for you, Right? And if I have to knock you out of the way so that I can make sure I get what I want, I'm going to do that. And so the breaking of faithfulness is going on across the board in Malachi's day. It's a little more uh, serious than that because God says here, why, if you look on the screen, why do we profane the covenant? Remember that God had chosen Israel. He had picked them out and he said, I am going to make a covenant with you, an everlasting covenant. And he goes back to, remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember Jacob, remember the patriarchs, remember the covenants I made with you as a nation. And the issue of faithfulness versus covenant wrecking is is put in place by these rhetorical questions that Malachi is raising. The first two questions, which is, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? 
Remind us of God's faithfulness in all things. Now, they knew about God's faithfulness in all things. They had all kinds of scripture that told them about God's faithfulness in all things. Matter of fact, some of the scripture that did that wasn't all that far removed from them. Let me uh, grab from Jeremiah and read to you from Jeremiah. This is from Jeremiah. It says, He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become a laughingstock of all peoples and the objects of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness and he has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And so I say my endurance has perished and so is my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. This, where is this description happening here? This is in, Jeremiah, or in Lamentations chapter 3. This is in the destruction of Jerusalem. This is when Nebuchadnezzar came in and Jeremiah the prophet had prophesied. He's standing in the midst of the city watching the city just get annihilated. The buildings are destroyed. There's murdered bodies all over the place. He's left alive. He's looking at everything going up in smoke. And that's where this description comes from. And yet in the midst of that, Jeremiah says this, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And some of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, what does he say? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Right Wait, that song's clicked in your head. Right? Hit, play. You'll have that song in your head all day. Right? Going on. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. Jeremiah brings us back that in spite of circumstance, God is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. Even when things are bad. And so he is pointing out to Israel the kind of faithfulness and the kind of covenant-keeping that God does versus the covenant-breaking and unfaithfulness that, that we do. Not only is God always faithful, but here's the point. God is always faithful, and therefore, because He's always faithful, we're supposed to be faithful as well. We're supposed to be covenant-keeping. Why? Because He's covenant-keeping. And so, um, uh, one of my all-time favorite verses is uh, in Psalms 37. And... Uh, the problem is in the ESV, it doesn't read the same way as it does in uh, the NASB, which is where I started years ago, right? NASB, then NIV, then ESV. Have you made that journey with me, right? And the problem is they've wiped out some of my favorite verses in the process. So, uh, But it's a beautiful expression of this covenant-keeping side. It's a farming metaphor, and it talks about how we should develop faithfulness in our relationships, just like a farmer is faithful in developing crops. This is out of Psalm Uh, 37.3 in New American Standard. It says this, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. In the ESV it says befriend. So the idea would become a friend with, but in the NASB it says cultivate. Cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We quote that one all the time. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. And so the idea here is, in contrast to what Israel was doing and being unfaithful, God says, cultivate faithfulness. I love that term because cultivate isn't a one-shot deal. 
If you're a farmer and you cultivate the land, that's a, almost a three-quarter year process. You start in spring and uh, the land has lied fallow and uh, you spread manure on it all during winter and then you plow the land up. Then you disc the land and then you till it and then you plant, right? And once you plant, you continue to, it, you depend on the rains and you watch the crops and many times you have to run pharaohs through, which is weeds, uh, taking out weeds and stuff. But the farmer cultivates the land for what? A harvest. And here God's saying, what harvest? Cultivate a harvest of faithfulness. Okay? That's what we as Christians are supposed to be doing, is cultivating a harvest of faithfulness unto the Lord. But in the midst of that, there is uh, covenant-breaking behavior that wrecks that harvest. Israel in this had stumbled badly. And, and Malachi is working off of all these metaphors. There's a bunch more that we could have pulled, but just I pulled those two uh, from Lamentations and Psalm 37 just to give us a taste of what Malachi is working off of. And he now begins to confront the people with their attitude and their practices. So verses 11 and 12, he says this, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord. The, the issue of unfaithfulness to God and to each other is raised here by Malachi. And the particular form and shape this unfaithfulness took was in the intermarriage with non-believers. And here's kind of how it rolled out. Malachi, Malachi is engaging. It's the exact same discussion that took place in Ezra and Nehemiah. Right? You're familiar with those two books. So if you read Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi, it, it, and I would throw Hosea in there as well, they all speak to this particular uh, topic. And it engages the conversation on two levels that are intimately connected to each other. And here's how it rolls out. Idolatry always tips towards sexual immorality. Okay? And sexual immorality always tips towards idolatry. They, they just go hand in hand. And both of these tip towards divorce. The theological maxim puts it this way. Either your theology will dictate your morality... Or your morality is going to dictate your theology. What that means is we say this and this until we want to do something. And then when we want to do something, we'll change our theology so that we're okay to do it. Where before we held to that and we say, oh, this is the word of God. Well, that doesn't apply to me right now because I, I want to get this done. How was that happening? In Israel, they were leaving their wives and marrying foreign women. God calls this detestable and desecrating. And Malachi's prayer was, if anybody did this, may they be cut off from Israel. In other words, he's saying, chop them out of the community. Take them out. That was his prayer. That's not a subtle prayer, right? That they would be cut off from Israel. What, what exactly are we looking at? Well, they're marrying foreign women, right? Okay, so they've, they've dropped their wife. They're marrying a foreign woman. What's wrong with that? They brought their gods with them. 
Okay? They brought their gods with them. You're going, what? Stop for a minute. Just think where we are today. All right? doesn't matter what age we are. This will, this will work. Um, think for a minute about the influence of the media. So think through the media, as you know. Particularly think about television. And think about the shows that are on television today. Right? I want you to think through ones you know and, and that kind of stuff. What happens? Well, we watch. Why? We watch either because we're interested or we watch because we're curious. The curious one is a dangerous one, right? The old saying, curiosity killed the cat. That's often us. And we usually don't have nine lives. But here's what happens. We laugh because it's funny. The easiest way or the easiest access point past our defenses to our emotions is laughter. Did you know that? We, when we laugh, we identify with something. When we identify with something, then we tend to invest our emotional capital into it. I like that because I laugh. It, it's funny. It, I enjoy that show. So we invest more emotional capital. When we invest emotional capital, we start to identify or belong or own that. Our hearts follow what we value. All right? And here's the point of that. Never mistake. Our TV shows bring their gods with them. Our TV shows bring their gods with them. Does that have an impact or effect on us? I think it does. This is the same sin that wrecked Israel in the affair of Aaron and the golden calf. Remember that story? Moses come down ten, and they were parting, it says. What was the parting? They had broke out into raucous, sexual, deviant behavior. The same sin that wrecked them when they were in the desert affair of Baal of Peor. Remember the Moabite women seduced the Israelite men and it caused the plague to break out in the camp? This is the same sin that wrecked King Solomon. What does it say about King Solomon? That he loved his foreign wives and they led his heart astray from the Lord. It's the same sin that destroyed the northern ten tribes of Israel. It's the same sin that sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile, of which Malachi's generation would have been keenly aware of because they're the rebuild. They're Israel 2.0, right, from what had happened out of that. And now this is the same sin that Ezra, Nehemiah, Hosea, and Malachi confront. And you, get, you can just hear Malachi saying, Are you kidding me? Are we back to this again? Like, seriously? Don't you remember what happened in the past? And the answer is no. They didn't. What were they doing? They were... They want, the foreign women offered an upgrade. Right? We upgrade everything. We upgrade our phones. We upgrade our cars. And in this case, they're upgrading their marriages. The old gray mare, she in what she used to be? You're not laughing. Come on, that was supposed to be... I was supposed to get you at one point today. That was my best shot. It just went... Boom. All right. I need an upgrade. So they grab these foreign women. What's the promise? A little more sexual kick, a little more excitement, a little more pizzazz. But with it came the foreign gods that you had to worship. And it was wrecking their culture. So they're caught 
And Malachi goes on and says this. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You, you weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why. Notice now they have gone from asking the question what or how, right? How, right? God says, I've loved you. They say, how have you loved us? To now they're asking why. How, why don't you show up anymore? How come we don't hear you anymore? How come you don't answer our prayers anymore? And God gives an answer. Malachi says, It's because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Notice there's that word again, covenant. God does not see our marriages as contracts. He sees them as covenants, not only with each other, but also with him. Uh, This is free. It's not in my sermon notes. But when I do uh, marriages and, and weddings, uh, particularly for a young couple that comes in these days we'll go through the ceremony and there's two sets of vows there's the vows of intentions and then there's the vows and a lot of young couples go well why are there two sets like are we just bored or running out of you know we need to fill because we're short on time or how come we have to do that twice and I said well let me explain those two to you so that they make sense to you I said your vows are your vows to each other all right so that's I, Craig, take you, Jennifer. I, Jennifer, take you, Craig, right? We're promising each other. It's this way. But the set of vows before that are not to each other. They're to God. When they say, Jeff, do you solemnly take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold, not that I've done weddings, but I kind of got it memorized, right? Have and to hold from this day forward for richer, better, for worse, richer, poor, and sickness and health, forsaken all this, till death do you part. And we say, I do. When we say I do there, we are not saying I do to each other. They're not even saying I do to me as the pastor, even though I'm the representative of authority. Who are they saying I do to? Saying I do to God. So in a wedding ceremony, you say I do. You covenant first with God this way. Then you covenant with each other this way. And most young couples' eyes kind of bulge out and go, wow, that's really serious. Yeah, I've really hit this. We didn't know that. I said, well, do you still want to get married? Yeah, I think so, you know. Uh, But it dawns on them that there's a level to this, right? Because when we're young and and we want to get married, what do we think about? We're thinking about what we're going to get. We're thinking about all the stuff. We not think about what we have to give. And we don't think about the cost. We don't think about God's side of it. We just, what? We're in love, (laughs) Right? And we don't think about what it takes to keep a covenant. We've not grown up with that idea, but the idea of what does it mean to stay faithful in a covenant is even more foreign to us in our country today. Now, divorce is not a modern phenomenon. You can tell because this is well over 2,500 years ago. And Malachi, when he's using the argument, he takes the masculine side of the argument. He's talking to the men. Because in that cultural era and epoch and time, it was predominantly the men because women were property. All right? Sorry, gals. Glad you didn't live back there. All right? But that's how that went. And he's talking about the men divorcing their wives. And the context here is the anguish they feel because they know the Lord's no longer listening to their prayers. So they come to the altar where God's supposed to meet them. They come into Jerusalem, to the temple, into the courts, 
to the holies and they are praying and weeping. Why don't you answer our prayers anymore? And they're absolutely bewildered. And Malachi lays out the reason. It's because you've been unfaithful. You have divorced the wife of your youth. The setting in the background is that these practices that came with them were abominable. Malachi said this should not even be in the altar anywhere close to the altar and, and you've desecrated it. He says you've profaned it. You've turned it into something really foul. Remember, Malachi's coming from God's perspective, how he looked at it. See, here's the point. God doesn't just see the immorality. That's certainly bad enough. And, but it's, it's not just the immorality. And it's not only the divorce issue that's on the table here, which, which is also bad, but he sees it from the angle, as I said, of covenant breaking. They were breaking faith. They were not only breaking faith with each other, but they're breaking covenant with God. And what's the reason given for such a sharp rebuke? Look at the next verse here in Malachi. It says, Malachi 15 says this, Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. What does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Malachi lays out that from God's perspective, it's the devastating impact that divorce has on children. That is really the part that grieving the heart of God, because God loves children. Uh, we'll, we'll look at that next week. What is God seeking? He's seeking godly offspring. Now, this isn't the point that children don't grow up or they don't survive divorce. That's not the point being made here at all. They do, obviously. But the point seems to be that divorce weakens the ability of children to relate and identify with God when they come out of a divorced home. And this tears God's heart up. What, what happens here? There's two major pictures. Let me, uh, let's go to Malachi 16 and we'll, I'll give you the two major pictures. Here's what Malachi says. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do, me, do not be unfaithful. When you ask what's the most basic picture that we have of God given in the Bible. There's two pictures that stand out. Two pictures that God uses about himself that uh, run across the entire paradigm. The first picture is that of husband. Okay, We are the what? We are the bride of Christ. That infers that as a bride we understand what a husband should be. Okay? The second picture that is so powerful in Scripture is that of father. Our father who art in heaven. And off of those two paradigms, God extends a picture to us of ways we can understand him on a human level that we can relate emotionally and get close to him is one as a father and the other is as a husband. And it's this husband one that Malachi is working off here. He says this, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, does violence to the one he should protect. What does a husband do? He protects. Who does he protect? He protects his wife and he protects his children. 
right? We, we know that. That's what a, a good dad does is he protects his kid. What does a good husband do? He protects his wife. And when a father walks away or out of a marriage, that picture is severely damaged. God as father no longer makes sense to children. Just think of our country. Um, most of the major divorce rulings occurred in the 60s. Okay, Nin- That's the 1960s. All right? That's not an age, 1960s. Uh, you can go and look them up and uh, see them. And... and for those of us who are my age, we would be able to track from the 1960s through now to 2018 uh, the, the impact of that on our land. What do you think that the impact of divorce has been on our country's ability to see God as Father? There's a reason Millennials and Gen Xers and all the other, whoever they are, young people. Okay? There's a reason they're not flocking to churches. There's a reason that the Bible doesn't make sense. There's a reason God doesn't seem close to them. That's because we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of kids who've grown up in a divorced home or live in a divorced home right now. And the picture of husband and father don't make any sense. They've never had one. They don't even know what it looks like. And the, the crying echo of men these days is this. I don't know how to be a father. And worse, I don't know how to be a husband. Why? Because the picture's been shattered. It's been broken. And again... I know so many of us have been touched by this. For so many of us, there's open sores. There's open wounds. We've had children go through divorce. We've had parents go through divorce. We've had sisters, brothers. We've been through divorce. Some of us have been through divorce and we hadn't wanted to be through divorce. It's a painful, painful topic. But Malachi's coming back from the side of, I know how it feels on your side. Here's how it feels on God's side. God's saying, my whole picture of redemption that I laid out is just getting shattered to where it makes no sense for people anymore. What other pictures do I pull up? It's kind of the cry of his heart. We're going to go on to this next week, but I want to leave it right here. I want you to ponder this week. I want you to think. I want you to pray. How has your picture of God as husband... God as Father been affected as you've watched the debris field of divorce in the world around you. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough one. It's got a wallop to it. And not necessarily a good one. It's painful. And it's a hard one to give. I've fretted all week because I know there's so many different categories and so many different layers and so many different... How do you even talk at it? But I've tried to stay faithful, Lord, to those two pictures and that of covenant. And I think that makes sense to us. We know we're supposed to be faithful. Matter of fact, some of our worst tears and our worst regrets are when we look back over our life and realize we weren't faithful to you when you've been so faithful to us.
We ask for your help in this. We know this ship has got a lot of leaks and it's sinking pretty rapidly. We ask that you would, like you always do in your unbelievable grace and unbelievable sovereignty, reach out in spite of our sin and rescue a people. You were trying to rescue Israel from themselves at this point. You're trying to rescue us at this point. We ask that we would stop and ponder that and think about the effect that that's had. And uh, we'll go back to this next week, what your son, Lord Jesus, had to say about this as well. And We give all of that to you in that spirit, in that context, and ask for your help through that same spirit. And ask this in your name. Amen.